Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's uh, open our Bibles now, please, to Luke chapter 17. We come to a section of Scripture um, that's very brief, only two verses, our text this morning. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Title of the message today, The Mystery of the Kingdom. This is Advent season for Christians all over the world. And the English word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, which is a translation of the Greek word parousia. Are you sufficiently confused? You might know that parousia speaks of Jesus coming in glory. That is his second coming. But technically, the Advent season sees the coming of Christ from a variety of perspectives, past, present, and future. We look back 2,000 years and remember the first Advent, the coming of Jesus as a baby born to a virgin girl in Bethlehem. But we also celebrate the presence of Christ in the hearts and minds and lives of his believers and in the church. But ultimately, we are looking forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus where all of his glory comes to consummation. We also understand that this is a mysterious thing. There are two passages of Scripture, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, that I think summarize the mystery of the kingdom. The first is Isaiah 9, 6, that we read at Christmas a lot. It says, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And so that is the first end of the bracket, if you will. Uh, It's a promise. It's a promise that had its fulfillment when a baby was born to Mary. But that's not the end. The consummation of that kingdom is in Revelation 19.16. When Jesus comes again, the scripture says, this time not riding a foal of a donkey, this time on a white war horse. And on his robe, the scripture says, and on his thigh, there was a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we live today between the coronation and the consummation of the kingdom of God. And so this morning, let's examine the mystery that comes along with that truth. In the New Testament, a mystery is something that was hidden in the past, but is now revealed to God's beloved. It's made clear, obvious in the present day. Now, what is clear about the kingdom of God that was hidden in the past is that there's an already and a not yet element to the kingdom. That is, in Jesus' day, the Old Testament scholars taught that there was coming a Messiah who would rule and reign over his people. And Jerusalem would be the capital city and all their enemies would be put under his feet. What they did not understand is that there would be two advents, two comings of Christ as King, separated by many, many years. Now we can see that clearly today in hindsight on this side of the cross. In a sense, we understand today better than the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, what God's eternal redemptive plan is because of God's progressive revelation. But it's still mysterious to us today in in some aspects. I think the best explanation that I have read goes back several years ago to B.H. Carroll. B.H. Carroll was the founder of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Fort Worth, Texas. 
And speaking of the mystery of the kingdom, he said this, God's revelation concerning Christ's kingdom is like a traveler who's heading west, who sees a great mountain in the distance. But as he gets closer, he realizes that it's not one mountain, but two, one in front of the other. But it's only when he reaches the first mountain that he realizes there's a great valley separating the two mountains by many miles. And so the first coming or advent of Christ as a baby is the first mountain. We have seen it. The prophets did from a distance. But when it came, we realized there was a second coming, a second mountain. And we now live between the two mountains in the valley, so to speak. This is a truth that is evident on this side of the cross, but was misunderstood in Jesus' day by both his disciples and his enemies, the Pharisees. And so let's read about that misunderstanding. Luke chapter 17 Verse 20 and 21, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Well, let's examine the mystery of the kingdom today. The first thing we notice is the certainty of the kingdom. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, Sometimes we talk about the kingdom of heaven. They are synonymous. They're the same thing. The Bible uses those terms interchangeably. We're talking about a monarchy. Now, we don't have a monarchy here. Thankfully, we have a democracy, but there's still a few places in the world that have the remnants of, of monarchies. We've read about them. We know for there to be a monarchy, you need a few ingredients. First of all, you need a sovereign, don't you? A king, someone with undisputed power over the kingdom. And then you need subjects for that monarch to rule over. That is, you need a kingdom, which is the ruler realm in which the king is sovereign. So in one sense, God the Father, our creator, is sovereign over everything he has created. So in that sense, the kingdom of God is universal in nature and, and scope. There's plenty of evidence in the Old Testament to verify that truth claim. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in heaven he does whatsoever he pleases. Again, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. And that is all of these rulers that gather for NATO meetings and United Nations meetings think that they're sovereign. But the truth is they're not. God is God. He alone sits on his throne in heaven. He does whatsoever he pleases. When the prophet Isaiah had his vision of the Lord, he saw him high and lifted up and sitting on a throne. God is the universal king. In the book of Revelation, when John the apostle was transported supernaturally into heaven, he saw the throne of God and he who sits upon it. That's none other than God the Father. But, but there is another sense in which God desires to give his son, Jesus, a kingdom chosen out of the rest of, of the world. Daniel says this in Daniel 7, 18, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. That is, there's a coming kingdom whose citizens are described as saints, meaning holy ones, separated from the world for a specific task, and that is to glory, glorify God. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9, described Christ's church in those terms. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, the Pharisees believed and taught that a Savior, Messiah, was coming to set up a kingdom on earth. That can be seen here in verse 20. He says, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. The question is not, is the kingdom coming? The question is, when is it coming? They believed the prophecies of, of the Old Testament that there was a coming king. They wanted to know, when's it going to happen? Well, that tells us right away that there was some confusion, even among the religious elite, about the mystery of the kingdom. I think we can summarize what the Pharisees taught about the coming kingdom uh, with a few bullet points. Number one, they believed that God would send a Savior to Israel. That is, this Messiah um, had a rule and realm that had borders. It was national Israel that the Savior would come to save. He would rule and reign over their enemies. That is the enemies of, of Israel. He, he would overthrow the oppressors. The, the citizens of the kingdom then would be God's chosen people. And ultimately, he would come to judge the nations of the world. But before he did, he believed that his coming would be accompanied by signs and wonders. So the truth is, as we think about their understanding of the coming of the king and our understanding on this side of the cross, they're very similar, aren't they? They had a lot of things right. But what they did not understand was that Messiah would come the first time to rule and reign in the hearts of those who would submit to his lordship. Should not have been a secret to them because on many occasions Jesus said that matter of factly. He said on one occasion, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what they believed, that, that Jesus' kingdom would look a whole lot like other kingdoms with armies and palaces. Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would fight. And it's even Peter misunderstood because when they came to arrest Jesus, what did he do? He, he fought. And Jesus says, put up your sword. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus did not come to form an insurrection, to form a coup, to take over world governments. Jesus came to rule and reign in the hearts of believers the first time. Note his answer in verse 20. He answered them when they asked, when's the kingdom coming? He said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. That is, it's not what you think it is. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Present tense. They were always looking for a sign. That's what the scripture says. This generation seeks for a sign. And it's not like they didn't have any signs. After all, when Jesus came, there was the sign of the star in the east. There was the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies right up until the very village in which he would be born. There had been plenty of signs leading up to Jesus coming. And even in his life after he came, he performed many signs and wonders including raising the dead. The point is you don't need any more signs. Jesus has fulfilled all of those prophecies. But I think more importantly, what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is not confined to political boundaries. He says it is in your midst. I think what he's saying ultimately is you're looking at him. 
They were looking, where, where is it going to come from? He goes, I'm here. The King James Version, in fact, renders this phrase, the kingdom is within you. I think that's a poor translation because he was speaking to Pharisees. The kingdom wasn't in them. He was saying it's in your midst, which is the proper translation here. You don't have to look any farther. Next Sunday morning, Tony Richmond will be preaching about the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. What did John preach and teach about the kingdom of God? Just this, same sermon every Sunday. Repent, for the kingdom of God is what? At hand. It's here. You've been hearing the prophets and the commentators on the prophets say for centuries, it's coming. I'm here to tell you, it's here. Look no longer. You don't need any more signs. In fact, when Jesus came out in the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist, John, I take it, pointed and said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He's here. This is the same message that Jesus taught about himself. I am the way, the truth, the life, he said. But even John the Baptist, as great as he was, Jesus says, the greatest man ever born of woman, that even John, as great as he was, was sometimes doubtful and even confused about the kingdom. You remember after John was arrested by Herod, as he awaited his eventual execution in the dungeon, he sent messengers to Jesus to ask a question, are you the one or should we look for another? <laughs> John's faith was like ours. It was imperfect. And at times it was weak. He didn't fully comprehend the mystery of the kingdom. Even Jesus' inner circle, the disciples didn't. James and John, probably closer to Jesus than anyone, badgered their mother, I suspect, into going to Jesus and said, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, grant me one favor. Let one of my sons sit on your left and one on your right. You know what she was asking? I want them to be your aides de camp, your vice president, so to speak. She was still thinking in those physical terms. When you overthrow the government, when you set up your earthly kingdom, I want my boys to get their fair share. Even James and John didn't understand. Judas, I think, was so disappointed that Jesus was not the Messiah he was looking for that he betrayed him. So after three and a half years of walking and talking and teaching these men, even after the resurrection, for 40 days he taught them more about the kingdom, right up into the moment of Jesus' ascension on the Mount, Mount of Olives, one of the very last things we have recorded that they asked him was, Lord, at this time will you store, restore the kingdom to Israel? They still didn't comprehend it. And thankfully, living when we do, we are not left to wonder the answer to some of these great questions. We have further revelation. Those men only had the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. We have the fulfilled canon of Scripture. And so our final point I want to spend some time on is clarity concerning the kingdom. Now, don't hear me saying, Brother Keith knows everything there is to know about the kingdom. I make no such claim. I don't know that anyone does know everything there is to know about the kingdom. I'm saying, based on the, the full counsel of God we have in the New Testament, we know much more than those living before Jesus and even during his day did about the kingdom. So, so there are several things I want us to, to know and to hold on to tenaciously 
through this kingdom, this Christmas season about the kingdom. Number one, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he ushered in the kingdom with his birth. And we can call this his, his coronation. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom on earth begins. That's why Mark 1.15 says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, some of you are old enough to remember when Queen Elizabeth of England was coronated. Back a long time ago. She's in her 90s now. And I expect her son, Prince Charles, thought by now he would have been the king. But so far he's not. She's holding on. But there will come a day when she will either abdicate the throne to Charles or, or someone else will take her place through death. And I suspect there will be quite a ceremony. Because that's what kings do when they start their reign. They make a big deal of it. They bring out all the military. They bring out the horses. They bring out the jewelry. They parade it around to announce I'm beginning my rule and reign. Now, isn't that very different than how Jesus coronated his rule and reign? Not in a palace of gold, but in a filthy stable. Not in an antiseptic hospital even, but in a manger, a place where they fed livestock. Jesus is humble and meek and lowly. But he indeed inaugurated his kingdom that day. And for the rest of his life, he embodied that kingdom. That is, wherever Jesus was, there was the kingdom. That's how I translate and interpret these verses we just read, Luke 17, 21. The kingdom of God is in your midst. He's saying, I am he. Those who follow me are, are part of the kingdom, in other words. And he proclaimed that kingdom all of his life. And friends, Let's pause here for a moment to remind ourselves, this is our task as well. Those of us who have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, our great commission is to proclaim that the kingdom has come. And this is what all true preachers and all true evangelists have done through the ages. For example, the apostle Paul, we studied his life for several years here as we studied through the book of Acts. If you remember how the book of Acts concludes in chapter 28, Paul makes it to Rome. And he has to pay for his own house arrest. He has to pay his own rent. The scripture says for two years he paid his own rent and people would come to visit him. And what did he teach them? He said he preached to them the kingdom of God. He preached to you what I'm preaching to you today. That Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new kingdom on earth and he invites people from every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnicity to be a part of his kingdom through faith. And this is the message of the good news that we take not only at Christmas but throughout the year. Not only did he proclaim the kingdom with his mouth, he showed the power of the kingdom with his authority. Every time Jesus healed a disease which is the result ultimately of sin's entrance into the world and sin's curse upon man. And every time he cast a demon out of a person, which he often did, he was exercising and demonstrating the power of his kingdom. He says in Luke 11, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Every time he did that, he was showing 
the power and the authority that the kingdom had. And it's amazing to me that the demons had better theology than the Pharisees. When Jesus would show up, they'd say, hey, that's the Son of God. Yet the Pharisees who'd been studying the Old Testament prophets for decades failed to recognize him as such. Jesus performed miracles and signs and, and wonders. But ultimately, Jesus expanded his kingdom, and he continues to. The greatest teaching that Jesus taught on the kingdom is through parables. And many of his parables clarified what the kingdom is and what it's not. Remember, the Pharisees were teaching that there was going to come one big moment in history where there was going to be a revolution and the Messiah was going to take over and he was going to put all their enemies under their feet. And so when Jesus showed up, the humble suffering servant of Isaiah, they didn't like it. They rejected that sort of Messiah. They were looking for someone more obvious and more powerful. And yet Jesus, as lowly and humble as he was, expanded the kingdom. He, he explained that the kingdom was sort of like that little mustard seed, which he said is the smallest of the seeds, but once it's planted and cultivated, it grows up into a tree that is so large that even the birds of the field can roost in it. It is constantly expanding in every direction, and it is to this good day. And from that little band of 12 disciples, there is today a group of billions who bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus. The kingdom continues to expand through evangelism and missions. And really what is happening through evangelism and missions is that Satan's kingdom of darkness is being plundered. We are taking captives, those who had been captured by their own sinfulness, who were nothing but pawns of Satan. When we speak the good news, the scripture says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When we proclaim the good news gospel to prisoners, the Holy Spirit takes that proclaimed message and opens their blind spiritual eyes and grants them faith and repentance and their spiritual shackles fall off, and they are transferred, their citizenship, out of the kingdom of Satan and to the kingdom of Christ. And that is glorious good news. Jesus expands his kingdom unbelievably through us. We get to be the means through which his kingdom expands as we go out and tell others. We can say much more about Jesus' relationship to the kingdom, but as we think about this Advent season, the most important thing to us is that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom with his birth, but one day he will return to consummate his kingdom with judgment. Revelation chapter 19, let's turn there. Last book of the New Testament. Remember the apostle John, the son of thunder, by the Holy Spirit's leadership, developed a much clearer understanding of the kingdom in his old age than he had in his youth. And he had this great and wonderful privilege of being transported supernaturally into the future and into the very throne room of heaven. He was told to write down what he saw for our benefit so that we would be encouraged 
to persevere in our Christian walk. In Revelation 19, 11, this is what he saw. And what he saw was the consummation of human history. He said, I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and the righteousness and in righteousness he judges and wages war. See, that's what the Pharisees wanted Jesus to do. They wanted him to wage war. But they didn't understand that the war he wages against all those who reject him. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Now he brings out the royal jewelry, not on earth. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed not with those little strips of cloth that Mary wrapped him up in. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, remember the first time he came, he said, I, I, I didn't come like other kings have come with armies. If my kingdom were of this world, he said, I, they would have fought. But now he is coming with his armies, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, wide and clean, which following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus said the first time he came, he came to seek and save those which are lost. But this time he comes to judge the living and the dead. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now hear this. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He reclaims his universal monarchy and will forevermore. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of things in heaven, that is the angels, of things on earth, that's all humanity, and things under the earth, that's even the demons themselves, will bow their knee and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What about you, dear friend? What do you say about Jesus? Is he a good man or even a faithful prophet? Do you get the warm fuzzies at Christmas time when you think about that baby in a manger? I don't know many people who have a, a negative view of Jesus. That's not enough. To be a follower of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, you have to understand that he has the right to rule and reign your life. That he has created you. That he has judged you. He knows every thought you've ever thought, every word you've ever spoken, every sin you've ever done. And yet, he's a good and righteous and a merciful king, isn't he? He's long-suffering, patient. And do you know why it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was born until he's come again, because he's patient, not willing that any should perish. He's giving us opportunity after opportunity to repent and call upon his name. But one day, that opportunity will be over. You know, some Christian theologians call that valley in between the two advents, the age of grace. 
They call it that because it's that period of time where Christ offers grace and forgiveness as a gift. But, but one day that, that time will be over. Paul describes it in, to the Thessalonian church when he says, one day the trumpet of God will sound. And, and when it does, friends, it will be everlasting too late to repent. There will be the resurrection not only of the saved but of the unsaved, and, and everyone will bow the knee. But when you bow the knee on the other side of the second coming, it will not change your eternal destiny. But if you will bow the knee in this life, that is, you will agree with Christ's assessment of yourself that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. If you call upon the name of the Lord, He promises to hear your prayer, to forgive your sin, and to save you. What about you? Who is Jesus? Is He a baby in the cradle? Or is he King of kings and Lord of lords? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that you are indeed a merciful and a kind and a gracious God. But you're also a judge. And as the perfect judge, you're not limited. You can't be fooled by our lies. You know the beginning from the end. You even have numbered the hairs on our head. So we are laid bare before you. And Father, the, the verdict upon all of us is guilty as charged. But you're not, you were not willing to leave us in our sins. And just the right moment that you had ordained before the foundation of the earth, you sent your son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin girl, Mary, to be born 2,000 years ago in a village called Bethlehem to grow up in a village around Galilee called Nazareth to be tempted as men are tempted yet without sin Jesus was born to die on the cross and the glorious good news and the message that expands the kingdom to this day is that Jesus died for sinners such as us and so Father I would pray if there's even one in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today they would give up. They would despair of anything they're clinging to as far as personal worth or goodness, that they would agree with your assessment of themselves, that they would come to you on your terms with empty hands and outturned pockets saying, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And Father, we take it from your word on your promise and you lie not that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, I pray you'd save lost sinners today. I pray for Christians who may have been walking with you for years. And Lord, help us to see that our race is not yet won. We are still in that valley between your two advents. We don't know how close we are to the other side, but we sense it's not far. Help us to be faithful till that day. Father, may you be pleased with all that is done and said here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.